0: Welcome to Ipsa a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Ilya Shapiro, Director of the Robert A. Levy Center for Constitutional Studies at the Cato Institute. We will discuss his article, The Once and Future Privileges or Immunities Clause, co-authored with Josh Blackman, which will be published in the George Mason Law Review. So welcome to the podcast, Ilya.
1: Good to be on. This is, uh, I'm excited to be Mr. 161.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, as you know, I've known you for a long time and always admired your work, and you've done a lot of great work, uh, as well as Josh, in in this area. But I was wondering, for listeners who may not be... As familiar with the privileges
1: or immunities. I mean, clause. where I'm from, we speak a little else, but I understand. That <laughs> not everyone is like that,
0: right? Maybe you could start by just saying a little bit about sort of what the clause or clauses are. Um, you know, where they, where kind of where they fit in the Constitution and where they came from.
2: Right.
1: So the original Constitution, uh, when we talk about the founders, the founding generation, in uh, 1787 that was ratified in 1789 and went to effect and then the Bill of Rights two years later um, that only applied to the federal government so if a state or one of the state's uh, subunits like a city or a county uh, was oppressing you in some way you could not go to federal court and claim hey the state is you know, censoring me or it's, the police are rummaging through my stuff without a warrant um, you, know, you might have some claims under state constitutional law but the federal constitution didn't apply to that after the Civil War, uh, there were three amendments that were passed. Um, first, outlawing slavery, the 13th Amendment. Uh, the 15th Amendment was about the, the right to vote. Uh, they can't discriminate on, on race uh, in that. But the 14th Amendment was meant to be the most substantive uh, protection uh, that, that people had against the states oppressing them. So we changed our constitutional structure. The states lost some of their power, the power to oppress, Uh, in large part because not only were the states enslaving people up to that point, but they were doing things to prevent them from uh, defending themselves, uh, the right to arm self-defense, or the right to earn honest living, or the right to travel where they want various things that states were doing that Congress didn't like, the Reconstruction Congress didn't like. And so in 1868, uh, after, after some debates and after some national civil rights acts that were the precursor to the 14th Amendment, um, Congress passed uh, the 14th Amendment, uh, which in relevant part says three things. No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States. That is what the privileges or immunities clause is. Then, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, the due process clause, nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws, the equal protection clause. And so a lot of modern constitutional law or a lot of claims that people make against uh, state uh, actions relate to one of, or more of these clauses in the 14th uh, Amendment. The way that the jurisprudence has developed, it turns out that five years after the 14th Amendment, the Privileges or immunities Clause was effectively eviscerated in the slaughterhouse cases in 1883, where uh, a, a case involving a monopoly that was granted to slaughterhouses in New Orleans uh, the court effectively said that there are no rights protected by this clause. Other some really obscure ones that nobody would really think of unless you unless you read the the history. Um, and so, for about 50 years, uh, maybe a little less. Um, it's as if the, the 14th Amendment didn't exist, or at least uh, there weren't really substantive protections. You still had due process if, uh, you know, some uh, some trial that you were being prosecuted was actually a kangaroo court. You could raise some, some claims that way, but the substantive protections against state infringements uh, weren't there until the court started doing what's called incorporation, meaning applying the Bill of Rights uh, to the states. Uh, and to this day, we're still... Uh, debating a few of the provisions that have not yet been "quote unquote" incorporated. Um, most recently, the, in the in the Thames versus Indiana case, the Supreme Court incorporated through the Due Process Clause the um, the excessive <coughs> fines clause of the uh, of the Eighth Amendment. But anyway, there, there's there's academic debate uh, and judicial debate about whether a lot of these protections should, rather than going through due process be going through this this privileges or immunities clause.
0: Right. So maybe we could just look directly at the 14th Amendment for a moment, because I think that's the primary focus of your paper, and talk historically about sort of your and, and Josh's understanding of what privilege or immunities and due process meant at the time that the 14th Amendment was ratified.
2: And it's important that you
1: phrased your question that way, because if you're going to be an originalist, if you care about the the public meaning uh, at the time of um, enactment, then for the 14th Amendment, you're looking at 1868. You're not looking at what the framers thought of as your privileges or immunities or or, or something like that. Uh, And uh, the debates of the 39th Congress notably Senator Jacob Howard and Representative John Bingham, uh, make it clear that privileges or immunities is effectively 19th century speak for natural rights plus certain civil or civic rights that the government grants. Um, And so in in the 18th century, at the founding, it might have been called something else, Uh, Although there is a privileges and immunities clause in Article 4. And so when the 39th Congress in the 1860s was debating uh, how to write the 14th Amendment, uh, it it looks like uh, from these these various speeches uh, that uh, privileges or immunities meant a a set of substantive protections um, that, that cover a lot of what the Bill of Rights was concerned about, but it also includes other things like the right to earn an honest living like uh, certain property rights uh, uh... uh... the right to have your contracts enforced or sit on a jury so some of these things are not natural rights you don't have them in the state of nature but uh, nevertheless, the government grants them to you, and states can't oppress them, according to the, the 14th Amendment. There's a really good exposition of the Privileges and Immunities Clause. Again, this is Article 4, uh, In an opinion called, uh, in a case called Corfield v. Coriel in 1823, written by Justice Bushrod Washington. That's George Washington's nephew. Not on the Supreme Court. This is when Justice's Road Circuit. So this is from the Pennsylvania Circuit. Uh, and he, he wrote an opinion saying, again, you can't, uh, kind of like Thomas Jefferson, talking about all the rights that we have have, um, you can't, you, they're infinite, you can't write them all out. Uh, so similarly, Justice Washington was saying, you know, we can't enumerate them all, but here's my stab at a whole bunch, and there's two paragraphs of all of these rights that we have. And a lot of that, I think, um, based, again, on the, on these, the, the debates in the, in the 39th Congress and the ratification debates over the, over the 14th Amendment, uh, this really is, um uh, the textual basis for understanding what substantively the 14th Amendment was meant to protect.
0: Okay, so your your paper focuses primarily on the 14th Amendment. So, you know, obviously we'll, we'll, we'll look at that uh, primarily as well. But I was wondering if you could talk briefly about how you think the concept of privileges and or immunities changed between the ratification of the Constitution in the 18th century, and the adoption of the 14th Amendment in the mid or sure. mid, mid to late 19th century, do you think that the substantive con the the substantive concepts at stake were essentially the same, or did they change in some kind of structural or um, kind of conceptual way, or was there just sort of a sort of shifting addition subtraction of particular like atomistic rights that were sort of fit into that concept
1: i think the universe of rights covered um isn't so different between the founding and the uh and the second founding uh, if you will the 14th amendment um ratification debates and enactment uh I think that what was foremost in the minds of the framers of the original Constitution versus the 14th Amendment, the priorities were somewhat different. Uh, take the right to bear arms, for example. Uh, at the founding, there was a great concern about uh, government tyranny, and you have to be able, you know, with other able-bodied men, be able to defend your town, your state, against that sort of tyranny that the colonists had just faced from George III. Well, in the post-Civil War era... Um, the concern wasn't so much about the Confederacy rising again to uh, have another Civil War, but about um, people being uh, physically hurt uh, um, because of their unpopular views. Well, freed slaves, freedmen for one, but also also, uh, Union sympathizers in the South, uh, Confederate sympathizers in the North, uh, Asians in the West, all of these different uh, kind of not necessarily ethnic and racial minorities but but, but people who were uh, minority who were different uh, than their communities in, in whatever way, and so the right to armed self defense took on a different slant uh, that is the emphasis was on personal self defense rather than defense against kind of greater governmental tyranny against the whole structure of your community and, and, and whatnot doesn 't mean that it means you know, it 's it's a different thing or that the right is operates uh, differently necessarily, but there are were, there were different concerns and so the right to earn a living and some of these economic liberties were uh, probably greater uh, under the 14th Amendment because of concerns of people being um, uh, you know, disenfranchised, uh, not in the voting sense, but kind of not being able to participate in society, not being able to conduct their business, uh, that sort of thing, for, for whatever reason. Uh, whereas at the founding, that you know, those kinds of concerns, if anything, are left to the Ninth Amendment. It's not specified um, you know, the, the, they, the framers of the Bill of Rights enumerated you know, eight amendments uh, and then said in the ninth that this doesn't deny or disparage other rights that are, that are maintained. Um, well, I think that that priority or what was foremost in their minds that, that, that needed protection, again, this mix uh, was different, as, as well as the civil rights or the government-granted rights, the, the privileges. Um, evolved uh, in the 70 years, 80 years between uh, these two foundings.
0: So I was wondering if you could talk for a minute as well about the initial moment when the Privileges or Immunities Clause was interpreted by the Supreme Court during the Reconstruction period, and the sort of social context in which that happened, and whether that may have affected the court's decision to ultimately write the Privileges or Immunities Clause out of its kind of constitutional toolkit, as it were.
1: So the slaughterhouse cases involved a huge hygiene problem, that public health problem that was plaguing the, the city and port of New Orleans. Uh, if people were butchering animals all over the place, and you know that was getting into the water system, you know breeding disease, etc, and so the city fathers decided okay we 're going to concentrate all of that sort of trade on one part along the river downstream from other human uses and what have you, but then they went further and they gave a monopoly in slaughter housing uh, to one company, and so its competitors were the ones that that sued saying hey we're we 're being denied our 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 rights, our our ability to make business, we have to do something completely different because we didn't get this license to be, to be a slaughterhouse, uh, and that's where the court decided that oh well, you know you might make a sympathetic policy argument or not, but uh, privileges or immunities only means uh, you know certain federally granted uh, privileges uh, like the ability to visit sub treasuries and certain protections on the high seas from the merchant marine and things like this, really obscure things it has nothing to do with natural rights or inherent rights or the Bill of Rights. Uh, um, At least that's the kind of general academic uh, interpretation of of what happened there. Um, Kevin Newsom, who's now an 11th Circuit judge, had been Solicitor General of uh, Alabama, uh, wrote a law review article about 15 years ago saying, kind of having a a revised uh, interpretation of Slaughterhouse saying that Slaughterhouse, whether it was right or wrong, was supposed to be narrow, and it was the court in subsequently years that blew Slaughterhouse uh, out of proportion. And you know, so when so when those of us who want to revive the privileges or immunities clause are blaming Slaughterhouse for everything, well, really isn't it the court in later years that misinterpreted? You know, I don't know about that. It's it's an interesting academic argument, but regardless, uh, that that is what happened, whether whether through Slaughterhouse or later. Uh, privileges or immunities weren't uh, weren't accepted and therefore we had after reconstruction redemption and so all the states all um, well, in the, the the former confederacy but but elsewhere in the United States you effect despite the passage of the Fourteenth amendment did not have protection uh, against state oppression uh, that, that that ran short of slavery uh, that ran short of the 13th amendment and so it took a uh, it took a while uh, to resurrect that. Now, the Lochner era, which is the end of the 19th, early 20th century, uh, resurrected certain uh, uh, rights uh, under the Due Process Clause. Uh, Lochner was a substantive due process case involving economic liberty, um, but it since had been repudiated um, in the New Deal court. And so since then, uh, you know, the kind of substantive due process remained, but economic liberty did not. And There's a complicated story, but regardless, privileges or immunities was still uh, a dead letter. And Josh Blackman and I, our first article on this subject nearly a decade ago called Keeping Pandora's Box Sealed, uh, went through the history of, of privileges or immunities and what it textually meant and some of these things that, that we've been discussing. And our purpose there was to was to say, during the pendency of the McDonald litigation, McDonald versus Chicago, which was about extending the, uh, the Second Amendment right to the states, that, look, uh, especially conservatives, don't be so afraid about reviving privileges or immunities because, at worst, it's going to be no worse or no different than current substantive due process jurisprudence that you might not like. But at best, it could have the potential of having a more constitutionally faithful interpretation and understanding of rights protections against state violation.
0: So, I was wondering if you could talk about that that shift, right? Because you, you you recognize sort of the the writing of privileges or immunities out of the Constitution, and then sort of a revival of a similar similar principle through the due process clause over the you know the course of the early twentieth century up until up until today, and I wonder why you think the court chose to use due process as a concept rather than reviving privileges or immunities at that point in time. I mean, it certainly seems like the court could have overruled Slaughterhouse, or it could have distinguished
1: Slaughterhouse,
0: but instead it seemed like it went a very different direction. I wonder why you think that is.
1: Well, when the court fairly early on, meaning in the 20s and 30s, decided not to have... um, wholesale incorporation of the Bill of Rights uh, and so we went we went with with piecemeal meaning as each individual clause was litigated or, or, or raised the court would decide uh, generally to apply it uh, to the states um, it sort of got in that habit uh, and you know I'm not a legal historian there might be something more there going on with just reading the cases as a sequence it seems like okay well here's the next thing and here's the Fourth Amendment and here's the you know the the first this aspect of the First Amendment. Here is this aspect of the Fifth Amendment, and the Takings Clause, and all these things. And they kind of just got done that way. And it's I guess just inertia mm-hmm. uh, would would be my explanation. Probably there wasn't as much academic work that had been done on Slaughterhouse showing how it's wrong. Now it's essentially universally accepted among scholars that Slaughterhouse was wrong, and that whatever you think the scope of the rights are or what they should be, uh, privileges or immunities is the constitutionally faithful way of doing so. There was a, a, an influential brief during McDonald, joined by Randy Barnett, libertarian, uh, Akhil Amar, progressive, and uh, Stephen Calabresi, a conservative, co-founder of the Federal Society, uh, all arguing that uh, uh, privileges or immunities uh, is the way to go. But again, the court didn't do that. Uh, and, and in McDonald, uh which was a 5-4 to four decision, um, uh, so there was, a, there was a plurality written by Justice Alito, extending the Second Amendment via due process. But Justice Thomas uh, concurred in the judgment, but wrote separately that this had to be done through privileges or immunities. And that was echoed last week in the Tim's case where Thomas wrote separately uh, and Gorsuch also wrote separately, although he joined the majority due process opinion, this time unanimous, uh, but did say that it would, uh, as an original matter, privileges or immunities is the way to go. And, and so, again, I think the concern on conservatives' minds is, well, you know, we don't like substantive due process because that's allowed abortion and all these other things that, that we might not like. Um, and Scalia made fun of substantive due process all the time, and yet he was given the opportunity to go back to what was more originally faithful in McDonald. And uh, not only did he not go along with it, but during oral argument, he made fun of Alan Gura, the counsel for, for McDonald, for, that he was plumping for an academic job or, or, or yeah. something. And so I think it's this concern that, well, you know, substitute process is bad enough, but it's the devil we know. If we move to this novel academic theory, then then Katie barred the door. And so that's what Josh and I have been trying to do with our, with our project Pandora. And then a couple of years later, joining also with Alan, who argued uh, McDonald on the Telltale Privileges or Immunities Clause, and now with the, uh, the third in our trilogy, if you will, uh, on, uh, on the once and future privileges or immunities clause 10 years later, what's, uh, what's happened? And by the way, um, on due process, there, is some, there has to be some substance to process because it's due process of law. If it's a well-functioning kangaroo court, uh, that's problematic from a due process uh, concern, even if it's you know, very efficient in all the procedures of the kangaroo court are observed. Tim Sandifer, who's the vice president at Goldwater, and adjunct scholar at Cato, has done a lot of work on the due process of law. In fact, he has a a new article coming out in the journal that you founded, the NYU Mm -hmm. Journal of Law and Liberty, explaining uh, more about uh, the due process substantive protections. And Tim and I go back and forth about whether there's actually any daylight between him and me, on this question, because he's a big proponent of, of due process interpreted correctly, and I'm, I'm a big pusher of PRI. Uh, ultimately, I think it, it can be very complementary and with some overlap, um, but not necessarily the same thing. So it seems like
0: The Privilege and Immunities Clause is one area in which legal scholarship has actually seems to have had some significant impact on judicial thinking and constitutional thinking in general in in the
1: courts. Um, I'm wondering... Or has it, if all we can get is Thomas, uh, who's his own legal historian, and then... And then Gorsuch, uh, you know, maybe maybe we just keep at it and uh, add an add another justice every decade, and forty years from now we'll be good to go. Yeah,
0: right, right, right. Well, I mean, I, I, I guess I wonder, sort of, um, you know, where you see that going forward. And and to return to the question you sort of were were bringing up before, like, what really is the sort of substantive difference, if any, between taking a due process tack as opposed to a privilege or immunities tack when thinking about civil rights. I mean, it it does seem like in recent years, the Supreme Court has adopted a kind of footnote for on steroids animosity angle to thinking about due process. Do you think that adopting privileges or immunities as a kind of guiding principle would suggest a different or broader or somehow distinctive way of thinking about sort of evaluating the uh, enforceability of claimed rights? Well, I think
1: it would be constitutionally more faithful. And if you care about the legitimacy of the law, then that's important, even if the practical result would be no different. you know, I, th- I think because there is uh, again from the ratification debates and the congressional debates over the Civil Rights Act of 1866 and beyond, um, we have evidence of what they were trying to get at, what the meaning of these words and phrases are, and they, they're meant to interlock that due process, equal protection, and privileges or immunities. Your uh, you raised the the animus uh, line of cases. I think that speaks more of equal protection, mm-hmm. and I think. Um, Justice Kennedy, in in his Obergefell opinion, the the, the gay marriage uh, case, um, really, you know, it's unfortunate that he didn't clarify exactly what it was doing. Because it sort of reads like you take a, a cup of due process, a scoop of equal protection, wrap it in a bow of dignity, and voila, you have this, you know, when to me that case seemed to be an equal protection case, regardless of which side you fell on. Um, you know, did the government have a good enough reason for treating this type of class of people differently from this type of class of people? That's a classic equal protection thing, not this, you know, due process, mystery of life, defining your own identity. And, you know, that might come up in certain other circumstances. But when you're talking about a marriage license from the state, it, uh, you know, that seems like. So So anyway, the, the delineation between the clauses, uh, I think there's plenty of academic work on this, but uh, judicially it hasn't quite filtered through.
0: Yeah, and, and I can't help but, because you, you, you mentioned in, in your paper sort of in passing the f- footnote four concerns about sort of limiting the government's ability or rather limiting the court's ability to review governmental action that doesn't necessarily affect like a minority group, that that doesn't raise the precise kinds of either due process or equal protection concerns that you were just discussing in some of the more more recent line of cases uh, as well. And yet, I, I can't help but wonder whether you know, the government can discriminate against large groups of people as well, so long as they don't have the kind of political wherewithal to, to do anything about it. And I wonder whether the privileges or immunities framework you're talking about would at least doctrinally leave courts freer to think about the legitimacy of, of legislation.
1: Well, I would hope so. And, and just to clarify for your listeners, you're referring to footnote four of Caroline Products, um, 1939 case? Sounds about right. 38?
0: Sort of like trying to make good on Williamson v. Lee. Right. <laughs> uh,
1: uh, where uh, the court said that some rights are more equal than others. So you have ones that are enumerated, although now the Second Amendment still seems to be a second second uh, right, um, second class right, right? Um, uh, but uh, government actions that 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 go after discrete and insular minorities as well as those that affect the integrity of the political process are subject to special scrutiny uh, and and I, you know that 's judge made that might be good or might not be good, but that 's wholly judge made and i think if yeah if you if you do uh look at the privileges or immunities rubric, I think that would allow you to um as you said give judges more freedom to um Scrutinize liberty-restricting regulations or actions, even if they, whether they affect majorities, minorities, or or one. It's really interesting this uh, class of one uh, jurisprudence regarding the equal protection clause, where it's not a whole class of people, or you know, whether it be uh, race or sex or profession or political view or anything that are going after, but like one person in particular is affected. Um, You know, that seems like ripe for a privileges or immunities analysis. I mean, it, could, it could be equal protection if there's you know a law that specifically targets one person but then then you 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 uh, run into the bill of attainder problems in, in addition so um uh, yeah I, I do think some of the kind of convolutions in our rights protecting jurisprudence more broadly uh could be smoothed out uh if you have this more um, uh, constitutionally faithful understanding of the Fourteenth Amendment more broadly, including a robust privileges or immunities clause
0: so it- in addition, re- returning to your discussion of Justice Thomas's recent revival of the privilege or immunities argument in McDonald, and most recently in in Tim's, um, in particular in McDonald, it's hard not to see a certain echo between his opinion there and the court's other uh, interpretation of the privileges or immunities clause in in Crookshank, which involved kind of eerily similar, well, in some ways similar um, rights at stake. I, I wonder if you think that that echo was in any way kind of influential or something that in particular got Justice Thomas's attention or made it seem like an especially appropriate forum in which to raise that concern.
1: Um, I, I think so. I mean, Cruikshank was about disarmament of, of freed slaves, I believe, yeah. yeah. Uh, and so that's that's obviously a concern that, that Justice Thomas has, and uh, you know I don't think I'd, I've heard anyone phrase it quite that way, and I don't know whether Thomas was you know, deliberately echoing other than just discussing a very relevant case because um, Crookshank was just a few years after after slaughterhouse. Uh, and I think it goes even stronger to show that that, that is precisely the type of state legislative action that um, the Fourteenth Amendment was meant to uh, remedy.
0: And do you foresee Gorsuch um, joining or pushing forward similar arguments in in the future? I mean, his his concurrence in in Tim's was was really kind of interesting and not something that he needed to do necessarily. So it it, it felt like it was intended as a signal of some kind.
1: Well, there's not that many clauses or provisions of the Bill of Rights left to incorporate. So I doubt we're going to see more in that direction, especially because Gorsuch did, after all, concur in the majority opinion, you know, saying effectively, look, all of the Bill of Rights virtually has been incorporated and incorporated this way, fine, let's just do that. But, but the next time there's some really meaty, unenumerated rights case um, I think you could see, uh, and I, I would like to see Thomas and Gorsuch get together on this. You know, writing the same opinion rather than separately. You know, delineating as they have a, a few times in, in different areas. I think that would be that would be powerful, and we'll see if anyone else can join them. But the um, you know all these these hot debates about uh, privacy and unnumerated rights more broadly. We're seeing now. You know, DC Circuit nominee Naomi Rao has hit a snag her, her nomination because. One senator has concerns about substantive due process and her views on unenumerated rights. Well, if we had a more constitutionally faithful way of doing this than simply, you know, whatever you can get five votes for historically, and especially Anthony Kennedy, um, you know, the, the, I think this would this would sort out our our jurisprudence and 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 our politics for that matter. Make make things a little clearer.
0: So yeah, in, in closing, I was wondering wondering if you could reflect on why. The overwhelming majority of justices have been so resistant to and even dismissive of the privileges or immunities argument I mean do you think it's primarily a function of like you said earlier maybe a form of inertia or just you know we've this is a the decision is done you know and we're going to stick with the precedent that we've had in the past and this isn't something we think needs to be overruled or do you think with some or maybe Even a majority of those justices, there's a concern that shifting the frame away from substantive due process to privileges or immunities could also reframe the debate about what the court is and should be doing.
1: Well, there are some, ju- I think it's a combination of things. It depends on the justice. For someone like John Roberts, who's a minimalist and an institutionalist, he doesn't want to make waves at all. If there's not going to be any practical difference, he might as well just stick to what we've been doing and stick to precedent and, and just keep going that way. Um, there's also a generational issue. All of the scholarship, including the realization that this is cross ideologically accepted in the academy, this, uh, that Slaughterhouse was wrong and that PRI is the way to go. Um, you know, I'm not sure that was the case when Stephen Breyer was in law school, for example. Uh, but it was when, by the time Neil Gorsuch got to law school and was a, was a young lawyer. And so, uh, much like the debate uh, within federal society circles, say, between judicial restraint and judicial engagement, this is just a new generation of, of thinking and, and understanding uh, these older trends that, that could have uh, that could have an impact. In addition to, uh, as I said, you know, some, like Roberts, having... Uh, institutional concerns about uh, minimalism and, and 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 things like that so they're they're are competing uh, uh factors here and then of course those who are not originalists at all probably doesn't really matter one way or another you know matters more whether the ultimate result fits into their conception of um, you know what what a legitimate government what kinds of rights it should be protecting
0: great well thank you so much for for speaking to me Ilya, and congratulations to you and josh on your really interesting paper
1: Good to be on. And uh, actually, I also have another paper coming out in the George Mason Law Review. I don't think the same volume. It's a special. Uh, this one is for a symposium on uh, the 150th anniversary of the 14th Amendment. The, the PRI paper. Uh, but I also have a paper on splitting the Ninth Circuit uh, in a separate volume, uh, in a separate issue, uh, and how that needs to be done for purposes of uh, the rule of law, not for because it's some liberal bias on the court.
0: Another uncontroversial subject. <laughs>
2: know about the four freedoms, freedom of speech, freedom to worship, freedom from want, and freedom from fear. But have you ever thought about what our life would be like without a fifth freedom, our freedom of mobility? As Americans, we have the freedom to go where we want, when we want, and how we want. That's pretty important, isn't it? We don't usually make a big deal out of it, though, probably because we don't have all the economic and political restrictions on travel that people face in other countries. I mean, here we just hop in our car or buy a ticket on a train or plane, and we're on our way. On our way to the store, to work, on our way to the beach or mountains, to grandma's, to church, and to go hunting or fishing or skiing or bowling, to see a drive-in movie, or maybe just for an afternoon drive in the country. What would happen if something, if anyone, put a roadblock in our way? What would happen if we lost our freedom of mobility? Well, for one thing, a lot of people you know would be out of work one out of every six Americans who make their living from the automotive industry. Another thing would happen, too, if we lost our automotive mobility. The quality of our society would deteriorate. Church attendance would fall off. The Rotary Club, the Kiwanis, the Elks, and all the other civic groups and organizations would cancel their meetings. Sports events would have empty seats. Theaters and concert halls would be empty. Unbelievable, you say? How can this happen? It can happen, for example, if our energy supply runs dry. If our highways and our means of transportation aren't kept up to date. It can happen if our government policies don't continue to place high priority on automotive transportation. And it can happen if our policymakers forget the vital importance of our precious fifth freedom. As always, it's up to us, the American people, to protect and preserve our freedoms. We have to remind our leaders over and over again what freedom of mobility means to us and to our country. There is no one else to do it except us. Bye.